God has rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from His perspective. You received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live Him. You're deeply rooted in Him. All right, Trinity Church, how you doing? It's great to see you today. Great to hear you sing. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job today getting us started. They're going to play a very integral role at the end of our service today. So if you're like, hey, we only did three songs, what's going on? Uh, we're, you can see that we are going to have the real privilege of participating in communion today. And, and this, the idea of communion today just flows so naturally out of the text that we're looking at. I want to welcome you. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor at Trinity Church. We just last week began a new series called Rooted. We're going to be looking at the book of Colossians over the next couple of months. If you have a Bible today, you can find your way there. Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we'll get you started. If you don't know where that is, remember my adage, go eat popped corn, popped corn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if that helps you a little bit uh, to find your way. We're in chapter 1. If you look in your Trinity this week, we have notes that look like this, if you want to get those out. That'll help you track with us in the message, but you'll also note that our home groups have begun again, and your prompts are in here, and they'll help your discussion if you look over those before you meet this week and get ready to go. Um, a big thing, uh, uh, we'll, it, we'll mention it throughout the service today, but just a reminder, we have this great opportunity today to meet up at Forest Home up at the lake. This fall reunion has been our one of our cultural things for years. We love it. It's a great time to be together as the church, even having three services. It's hard to even see some people sometimes, and so this is a great way to do that. When you go up to Forest Home today, obviously you can look them up on a map. Be sure, look for our sandwich board signs, because as you see the camp, you're going to go another half mile up before you make a left and go over to the lake. So I want you to make sure you can find your way. All are welcomed. All are invited. Besides great things on the lake and the paddle uh, boats, or I'm sorry, the, the kayaks and the paddle boards, this great new uh, slide that got introduced last year. We're going to have these great baptisms today, just very powerful and great testimony to who, even what we just sang right now, that we are free because we're in Christ. And so I want you to join us today. Remember to bring something to eat. It goes from two to seven. Join us at any time in there, but bring your own meal. And otherwise, there's medical forms just that Forest Home asks us to sign that up. The Welcome Center will have them at the camp at the lake as well. So join us today. I also wanted to apologize for the four-wheeling expedition it is to get to church uh, recently. I don't know what's going on uh, with the city of Redlands. Apparently, if you just break up asphalt and water it a lot, good things are supposed to happen. So the new concrete isn't grown yet, so I'm not sure what's supposed to be. I had the great privilege yesterday of driving behind the water truck that moves at the remarkable pace of about 12 miles an hour. And uh, so all kinds of good things. So suffer with us. It's okay. Hopefully, though, we'll have it ready for next week. But you did not hear me promise that because then I know you're going to come tell me, Todd, you said, I just said I'm hoping like you are. Okay? So 
It's good. Well, last week we, we jumped into this book uh, called Colossians, uh, written to a group of, of new Jesus followers and a group of people that Paul had never met. All throughout this letter, he's going to say things we've heard about you. So he, he has not met them. We, we said last week, or we saw in the text, that uh, uh, someone who'd come to faith in Jesus through Paul, a guy named Epaphras, simply went back to his hometown. He's from Colossae, and he wants to share this great news of Jesus, and a church begins as a result. So you got to believe Paul was just elated to get to send a letter to a group of people that he hadn't even met yet, but loved the same Jesus he did. And he gets to encourage them all throughout. And so we read and looked at this beautiful prayer that Paul had last week. And in it, what we see and what we'll see all throughout the book is what Paul's going to lay out is the context of the gospel. He's going to help readers like us understand who we are and who Jesus is, and as a result, why the gospel is needed. But also throughout this book of Colossians, more in the second half, we're going to understand in, in responding to the gospel, how then ought we to live? What does it mean to not just be rooted in Christ, but to live a life out of that reality, living towards him, living for him? And that's the beauty of what we're going to see throughout this book. As we dive in today, we are going to see probably the most succinct passage in all of the Bible related to the supremacy of Jesus. I can't wait. Remember I said last week that if you understand the, the Sunday school answer to most questions is Jesus, well, all throughout Colossians, it is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you're going to see that in just all kinds of stereo today. So I'm really excited to get to look at this passage with you. Here's our now what idea. What are we supposed to do with this truth? In light of who Jesus is and all he has done for you, continue in him. That's what this week is supposed to generate in our lives in light of all that Jesus is and what he has done for you. Continue in him. Let's dive in in your notes. Number one, at the center of all things is Jesus. At the center of all things is Jesus. We're picking it up today. Colossians 1 verse 15. It says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. I just love the way this passage begins with just how great is Jesus. When you think about songs, lyrical songs that are just some of your favorites, it's probably a compilation of things. It's probably something about the melody. It's probably something about the instrumentation. But if you boil it down, a lyrical song is your favorite because it says something that really resonates with your heart. It almost says it for you, like on your behalf, these words, and you're like, I couldn't have said it better. That's why you're drawn to, to certain songs. Well, this is what was really interesting is that as we left Paul last week, as he gave us a prayer, now in the second half of Colossians, he gives us a song. Verses 15 down through, I think it's about 20, is actually a hymn that is all related to the greatness of who Jesus is. And we're going to see this today, these great words that are just going to truly grab hold of you and should move us to be a people who say, my Lord and my God. Just blown away by all of who Jesus is. He is indeed at the center of all things. There is no one available to compare him with. He is simply in his own category. When you read the book of Hebrews, what you see over and again in about the first six chapters is Jesus is better than. All these comparisons the author of Hebrews is making. This part of Colossians, Paul just simply says there's no one to compare him to. 
He is simply supreme. There is no being like him that can be in the same category. The passage begins by, with Paul identifying whom he's writing by. He says, the son. If you were here with us last week, you remember that's how that prayer ended. He, those, those final words were that God has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So this is just a, a flow of thought. It's just the very next words that come after that. Paul is going to go on now and tell us more about this son and why God loves him. Look at some of the phrases. He is the image of the invisible God. I want you to catch this. Sometimes we think of the word image and it's like a shadow, right? Here you are, the light's from behind you. It's casting a shadow onto the pavement. This is not the concept here of that image. It's the idea of essence. It's the idea of a prototype, that which doesn't just resemble something else, but from whom it's drawn. That's powerful when you stop and think about that. Jesus isn't just this one-dimensional image of God. He is the prototype drawn from the essence of who God is. I think it's also very powerful that we see this phrase that he is making visible the invisible God. That's to me so much of the joy when we celebrate Christmas and the reason we keep using words like Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is making visible. Jesus is revealing the character and the nature of God to us in the flesh so we can see what it looks like. So great. He is the firstborn over all creation. Another phrase that's there. This is a good question. What does this infer? The firstborn, does this somehow mean that Jesus is born of God and not in essence God himself, but maybe like God? The idea here is primarily this, it's to, to communicate the rights and privileges of the firstborn. Don't see this so much as a specific idea when you think of firstborn that then by essence, Jesus is somehow emanates from God, that he is like God, but not God. It doesn't mean that. What it's talking about is, is when you think of all the rights and privileges that come with firstborn, this is the idea that this passage is walking out. And those ideas come back to this. It's that of a priority in time and a supremacy in rank. Almost every culture understands that, that the firstborn in any given family has this sense of primacy and, and in terms of time and a supremacy in terms of rank. It doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow born of God, meaning that he is less or of a similar essence, but that he is God. And God has made the character of the Godhead known to us now prior to the created order and supreme to it. This is the way the apostle John puts it in John 1.18. It's on the screens. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. You need to know that huge theological conversations have gone back and forth over passages like this from Colossians 1. And by the way, these are not new occurrences all the way back in the first century. In the first century, when people were beginning to get an understanding, as the apostles had written these letters and, and the, the testaments from the um, gospels of who Jesus is, the church is trying to form this understanding, this belief system of understanding the nature and the character of God. So within even the first and early second century, there were groups, there were divisions that were forming over when people would read firstborn of God, doesn't mean God, it means like God. But they go back to the apostles' writing, they go back to what we just read in John 1 and go, no, no, no. Jesus is this, this triune member of the Godhead. He is one of these triune members. He is God, not something like him. And that, that really causes great friction. 
It's, it's huge when you think about this idea. If he is only like God, being in similar essence, then you have a Jesus who is only a unique prophet. You have a Jesus who is a, a unique ambassador of God, but not God himself. Many religious systems that are alive and well today base their understanding of Jesus on that notion. He's sin of God, he's kind of like God, but not God himself. But we would see cover to cover as we continue to read our Bibles, we see this triune Godhead, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit Hard to understand, hard to boil that all down to just real simple concrete terms and wrap our hands around it, but we see it time and time again. And within them, though they are three persons, they are one in essence and one in terms of value. There's no lesser being within the Godhead. They are all at the same time God. So this understanding is really important as we move forward. Look at this the way we said it in your notes. Jesus is indeed fully God and fully human, and being so was the only acceptable sacrifice that could turn aside the condemnation that we deserved. This is how we say it in our Trinity um, statement of faith. It reads this way. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person with two natures. One person in two natures. Look at all of these amazing things as well, this next sequence of alls. What is he in charge of? What is he supreme over? And I want to ask you as we read these, consider what doesn't fit under the umbrella of all. All things created in or by him. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible. And in case you didn't know what those were, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Paul is just listing out this great list. Jesus is before and over all things. Things created through him and for him. See how this concludes. Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. I love that last phrase, in him all things hold together. Here's in essence what we're saying. If Jesus just for a moment became distracted, just for a moment became something other than who he is, if he is truly holding all things together in the universe, just for a moment forgets the essence of all things is bound up in him, it all falls apart. Think of the power, think of the, the absolute essential quality of who Jesus is and what he means to us. Even for those of us who haven't yet put our faith in him, he is holding your life together. I thought of it when we were singing last weekend, we were singing the line of one of our songs that we do often. It says, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. God, it just makes sense if you are the giver of even the breath that goes into my lungs that I would simply give it back to you. He is holding all things together before all things. He is both the creator and the sustainer. And again, what doesn't fit under the canopy of all? Knowing that, let's see what's next in this song that attests to Jesus' supremacy. In your notes, number two, because of what he accomplished at the cross, Jesus is the head of the church. Because of what he accomplished at the cross, Jesus is the head of the church. Now back to chapter one, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he, Jesus, might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul begins by talking about the body. This, this group of Colossian believers, Jesus followers, they understood they were a part of the body of Christ. They were the representation of Jesus on earth since, he's, since he had already accomplished what he did at the cross and returned to the Father. So Paul is starting from the beginning. The church is led and directed. That's what the essence of the word head means, is led and directed by Jesus. See that term again. He is the firstborn. And realize it's the same meaning. Jesus has the priority in time and the supremacy and rank of those who will be resurrected from the dead. That is the hope that Jesus gives to us. And that regarding Jesus' church alive and representing him now in relation to their fulfillment of the fulfillment of their hope and the resurrection of the dead, Jesus reigns supreme because he is the founder. That's another word for the word beginning. He's the founder and the firstborn. But it's this next statement I want to draw your attention to that I think is so impressive to us today. For God was pleased. For God was pleased. Watch this. It brought God pleasure. And in this case, to do two things. Interestingly enough, last week when we looked, this same phrase was there that we would, that was kind of the essence of the prayer, that you would live a life um, worthy of your calling, what? And pleasing God in every way. So that was the idea that our, uh, Paul's prayer for the Colossians is they would live lives that would put a smile on the face of God, a life that would bring God pleasure. This is interesting. Two things now in this part of Colossians 1 bring God pleasure, and neither of them have anything to do with what we do. They have everything to do with what God did. It brought God pleasure to put all of his fullness into Jesus, the God-man, and to reconcile us, to reconcile fallen human beings back to God through his death. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. What puts a smile on the face of God? In Colossians 1, we know for sure two things do. We know that it pleased him, it brought him pleasure to have his fullness dwell in Jesus as well as to put him on a cross in your place and in my place. Look at your notes. God was pleased. It brought him pleasure to have all his fullness, his essence, dwell, not in the sense of a temporary stay, but a permanent residency in Jesus. It brought God great pleasure that his essence, all of it, would dwell permanently in a residency in Jesus. If you were here uh, two weeks ago, we finished up our, um, our um, Where You Fit at Trinity series. Hilke did a great job preaching from Ephesians 3. And it was the essence of we ought to pray for one another. And the way we pray best for one another is in community when we actually know what's going on in each other's lives. And in it, as he walked through the prayer, he got to that part where he talked about a mason jar. And he talked about a mason jar and he talked about the idea, what it says in the passage, Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers that they would be filled with all of who God is, that God would, would invade, as it were, and fill up their lives. And he used this idea that if you go to the ocean, and, and the idea is that your life represents this, is represented by this jar, and you put the jar in the, in the ocean and it can be filled up. What we realize in our lives, and he used that great example of that, um, that little pamphlet, My Heart, Christ's Home, that basically in our lives, we have these rooms that are closed off to God. So often if we go to scoop up the, the ocean, as it were, the, this essence of God, we have already so much in there that God is, isn't allowed into these spaces. 
And that's the, that's the idea of the prayer. Would you more and more surrender? Surrender these areas of your life so that God can fill you up. That's his, his desire. So it was a great illustration of that, and, and that's what that jarred me. But then I was thinking about that illustration through this lens. And what we said was, you have one jar, and when you scoop it up, you have the essence of the ocean, but obviously not the volume of it, just a representation of it, and it could fill the jar, but you, there's no way you can contain the vast sum. When Colossians 1 tells us that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, what he's saying is, here's Jesus, here's the human reality of his body, the human reality of his essence. God was pleased to take all of the vast sum of the oceans, not just the Pacific, take all of the vast sum of the oceans and put them in here. That's what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. He was not a part of God. All of the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. This is who Jesus is. This is this essence. And it's so powerful to stop and realize who it is that walked among us. Not a God, not a representative of God. God walked among us. See that the Father was not only pleased to send very God to take up residence in human flesh, but to send him with the expressed purpose of being the agent of reconciliation to make a way for us to be right with our creator. And the interesting thing is, Jesus alone could do this because he had these two natures we referred to, the nature of earth, his humanity, and the nature of heaven, his deity. And it would not be in merely a life lived in both natures, but a death died, a suitable sacrifice that would cause there to be peace between God and us. Here's what I need you to know. When you think about what Jesus did at the cross, when you think about what we will even celebrate today in communion, that Jesus willingly went to the cross on our behalf, here's one thing you have to keep coming back to. Jesus was the only eligible one who could do what he did. There might be someone here today, and if there was some unique set of circumstances where one person could be sacrificed for the whole of us, one person could be taken, their life taken, so that the rest of us could live, we would say in that moment in time, wow, that was powerful, what an act of sacrifice, but at the end of the day, we all still die. That person could never do something to suitably take away your biggest fear, that of death. Jesus, fully God, fully man, only Jesus was ever even eligible to do what he did on the cross. He didn't just simply die, he died for the sins of the world. And in doing so, he was the only eligible person who could have even done this. That's what makes it powerful when Jesus is in the garden. The gospels attest to this. He's in the garden. He is crying out to the Father. Drops of blood are emanating from his forehead. He's praying, God, if there's any other way. Can you realize if Jesus at that moment would have said, fork in the road, I'm out, we're hopeless. We are absolutely hopeless. He was the only one who could do what he did. And praise God, he stepped into that role. Look at the great way that the author of Hebrews talks about this idea of a suitable sacrifice. Hebrews 2 verse 14, since the children, talking about us, the children of God, the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Man, we just say that again and again. Jesus conquered our greatest fear. For surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but Abraham's descendants. Watch this. For this reason, he had to be made like them. He had to take on flesh, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And look at this last line. And that he might make atonement. He might turn aside the wrath of God for the sins of the people. That and only that sequence allowed us to be at peace with God. Many of you are familiar with a tract or a pamphlet called Steps to Peace with God. It's been in existence for decades. It's a great tool. But I find this interesting. For conversations that you and I might have with people who don't yet know Jesus, haven't yet responded to him, that's exactly what this tract is for. I find it interesting that actually when I would share this with someone, they would actually first have to start with this. So there's a problem? Steps to peace with God, you're inferring there's a problem, there's conflict with me and God. I thought we were okay. And that's why it's so absolutely necessary every single time we talk about the great news of the gospel, we have to begin with the bad news. We always start with A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who in both, and we'll see today, in both nature and behavior has, has lived apart from God's design. That has to be on the table. It has to be in front and center because there's no need for peace if everything between me and God are great. There's a problem, a rift in the relationship. And as a result, to be at peace with God, I need Jesus to take my place. So what? I need to be believe. Believe that Jesus is the only, and man, today, how can you walk away thinking he's anything less? He's the only savior available. And see, is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I recognize my need for you. I choose to live now according to your design and trust you for what you did at the cross on my behalf. That's the gospel, and that's why we use the ABCs so much. This idea of a sin problem, it creates a divide in the relationship. It causes us to be at odds, and we'll see in just a minute, even to become enemies of God. That's why it's so important that we begin with this news. And the reality at the end of the day, what we're always telling people, what they need most is not more religion. What they need most is not to try to be more moral. What they need most is not to be an American. They simply need Jesus. He and he alone accomplishes a way for us to have peace with God. Finally, number three in your notes today, because, Jesus, because God sees Jesus when he sees you, you stand blameless before him. Because God sees Jesus when he sees you, you stand blameless before him. Chapter 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I want you to see in this last part we're looking at today, see how Paul begins. He reminds them of who they were. Remember, this is a group of people he's never personally met. And so he's writing a little bit from afar what he knows of them. He's going to address a bunch of issues throughout this letter. But he begins with something universal to us all. We were alienated and we were enemies of God. 
The word alienated is a verb that is a perfect participle. So that means it describes a completed action with present effects. A completed action with present effects. And it's not just that, but it's either a middle or a passive. So meaning that we realize it's either a result of something we ourselves have done related to our sin problem, or it's something that's been done to us. So let's ask the question, which is it? Is the problem that we have with God the reason that we don't have peace with God naturally because we ourselves have done something or something was done to us? And the answer is yes. It is yes. We were born with a fallen nature. There's nothing you could do about that, nothing I could do about it. It was, bo- it was done to you, as it were, just by the fact that you're human. But, like this passage said, not just in your nature, but in your behavior. What it say? You are enemies. You were enemies of God because of, through your mind because of your behavior. So both who, who you are in nature and what you've done in behavior, that creates the problem. Now, right now, it's really cool at Trinity Church, a lot of babies are being born. It's really great. We're in a season of just a lot of people giving birth, and it's so cool. And you get to hold this new baby. You, you get to look at this in, just amazing, precious life. And you're asking yourself the question, God, how can this be broken? How, how can this have a fallen nature? The Bible even says in uh, Ephesians 2 that this, this child, it's hard to hear, is spiritually dead. We're all dead on arrival spiritually in this world. How can this be? Just wait. Wait till they turn two. <laughs> you will totally find out. I've raised four children. It all happens. Same way. Nature and behavior. They're going to show you. Mom, dad, I have a fallen nature. And I am separated from God because of my evil behavior. This is, this is it. So Paul, in some ways, is not telling us anything new. We see it materialize in our lives and materialize in the lives of those around us. But this is the essence. Sinners because we were born into a fallen world and a fallen nature, but also sinners because of what we've done. And we're not only estranged, afar from God, but enemies. This phrase is in that passage, we're enemies of him apart from what Jesus has done and what we've responded to. Look at this powerful word, the word reconcile. We saw it earlier, and it's in this passage again. Look in your notes. Reconcile is to bring back to a former state of harmony. I love that definition. To reconcile is to bring back to a former state of harmony. And and think of that. Not only is that powerful vertically with God, that we were created from the very beginning. The the desire of God, the will of God, was to create a a place and and a world where we were at one in right relationship with him. Our predecessors chose To violate that standard, we've been in a problem ever since. But God created us for that harmony. So what is God doing? In reconciling us, he's bringing us back to the original design. I think that word is not only powerful related to the vertical truth, but related to the horizontal truth. When a relationship that you're in has a problem, has a tension, you need to reconcile. That is the whole goal of what we do in relationship to bring back, bring that relationship back to a place of harmony. It's a powerful word, one that is not just reserved for God, but also for his people. And look at what the goal is, is that in this reconciliation that, you, that God would present you. It's the same verbal tense as the word reconcile. It's a completed action actively accomplished by God. God reconciles and God presents you. God is doing this work. And it's because of what was accomplished at the cross through Jesus' physical body, how he was made like his brother's that the Father is able to present you in a completed manner, holy, blameless, and free from accusation. 
I want to show you those words just very briefly. Holy, it simply means to be set apart for a purpose. To be set apart for a purpose. That's what the word holy means. And and I think in this sequence, the way we can understand it is that when we are holy before God, presented before God as holy, we are spiritually acceptable. Spiritually acceptable. The next phrase, without blemish, it means just like it sounds, free from fault, unblameable. Interestingly enough, of the nine times this phrase is used, unblemished or without blemish, three of the nine times it's always linked to the word holy, just like it is in this passage, holy and blameless, holy and blameless, holy and blameless. If holy means that we are spiritually acceptable to God, blameless would infer that we are ethically, ethically acceptable to God. And finally, that last phrase, free from accusation. Man, I love this definition. It means not convictable when a person is properly scrutinized. You cannot convict when you properly understand the situation. That means free from accusation. That is legally acceptable. Because of what Jesus has done for you, the Bible says that you can be spiritually acceptable, ethically acceptable, and legally acceptable before God. All throughout today, these are full of yay God moments. That needs one. Can we do that? One, two, three. Yay God. This is great news. Jesus has done this for you. And as a result, you stand, you are presented to God as someone who is in Christ. When God sees you, he sees Jesus because Jesus took your punishment that you deserved as God's enemy. And watch this. And now, and listen to me when I say this. Think of it this way. If God is here, you are here. Jesus is here. Jesus comes between you and God. You and I deserve the wrath of God as enemies, as alienated. Jesus steps in between. And watch this. As a result, when God sees you, he confuses you with his son. I know that word might seem really odd, and I don't mean it technically. God's never confused, but get the point of what I'm saying. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. That's what it means to be in him. Very similar language, by the way, these three ideas, very similar language to that found in Ephesians 5 when we talked about Jesus, the sacrificial leader, lover of his church, the bride, how he will present her to himself, listen to this phrase, without stain or wrinkle and watch or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's the same kind of language, how we will be ultimately before our Father. Now you look at these three concepts and here's what I know has been going on. From the moment I talked about that you are holy, without blame and free from accusation, the minute you heard those words, you were thinking this. I sure don't feel that way. Todd, if you knew me, even though I put my faith in Jesus, I sure don't live a life that is holy, without blame, and free of accusation. Can I tell you something? This should not need even be mentioned. Just moments of interacting with me, you'll realize neither do I. This is a dissonance each and every one of us as we're reading this text today should come in line with and go, okay, God, you say, you say I'm holy, free, uh, without blemish and free from accusation, but I know me. I know I don't fully live that kind of life. I live a life that looks differently from that. How can those words be true? And here's what I want to remind you of today. These words refer to your new identity. You're standing. Remember it says he put you in a position to stand before the face of God. 
You're standing before God, and though you and I may forget whose we are, though you and I may not live consistently with our position in him, look in your notes, because Jesus, the basis of our standing isn't moving, God still sees Jesus when he sees you. What this is based on is not how well I can keep in tow, not how well I can always live an obedient life. My, my standing before God is based on something much greater than what I can do. It's related all about what Jesus did. So I'm standing in him because Jesus isn't going anywhere. God continues to see him when he sees me. A passage I refer to so often is because it so succinctly says what we need to keep hearing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, look on the screen. God made him who had no sin, Jesus fully righteous. Watch this. God made him who had no sin to be sin, not to bear, to be, to be sin, so that we might trade places, we might become the righteousness of God. I know that's something we all are lacking and something we all need to keep growing in as a reminder of whose we are. And out of that understanding of identity, we will live a life that looks more like our Savior. But as long as we are stuck saying, God, I failed, God, I've blown it here, God, I don't live up to, and only being reminded of who you aren't, I have a feeling you're never going to grow in who you're called to be. Recognize beginning with whose you are. God sees his son when he sees you, and that gives us the ability, the grace, the power to live a life out of that identity, not just trying harder, but spirit-infused power to live out the life God's called us to because we recognize we are his. And what was supposed to be the response, the Colossians, what were they supposed to respond to in all that God had done for them? Very simple, not easy, but simple. Continue and do not be moved. All of this was leading up to, Paul's laying out this whole huge idea of who Jesus is, this whole huge idea of what he's done for them. This is what their response to that is, continue and do not be moved. First understand today clearly what he did not say. In response to all of this, Paul did not say, try harder to keep the law. Didn't say that. He didn't say, try harder to be more moral than you used to be. Didn't say that. He didn't say, try to appease the angry God who's mad at you. Didn't say that. None of those things. Continue and do not be moved from this great news that you've already heard and received. Why would Paul need to include this condition? That's an interesting question you and I should ask ourselves. Why does even Paul bring up this idea in the whole mix? And here's why. We're going to be seeing all throughout this letter that the Colossian Christians are going to be coaxed. This is the problem. This is the occasion we talked about last week. They are moving away from Jesus is the primary mover, the primary reason for their new standing with God. They're beginning to let other ideas come in and change that. So Paul is addressing the problem. You are, I already know, you are beginning to move away. I'm bringing correction to that. Don't. Continue in him and don't be moved. In your notes, this group of new followers were considering departing from their pure reliance upon Jesus to other additional means by which they had to do or believe to be saved. They were getting ushered into a Jesus plus type of culture and Paul writes to address that, don't you dare. It is not Jesus plus anything. 
Paul finishes the letter by reminding them that this gospel that they've heard and received, it's not some isolated tale that he simply told to a guy, Epaphras, who told to them, this gospel is going out throughout the world. Remember, that was in his prayer last week. And it's not just going out through the world, it's bearing fruit and it's growing. He wants them to know they are a part of something much bigger than what they've responded to in the small city of Colossae. From prayer to song, Paul is directing the Colossian followers of Jesus to see his worth, to see his supremacy, and to continue in the great news that they have heard and received. So this week, would you, would I, see these same truths and realize that not only did Jesus provide a way for you to be at peace with your creator, for you to be in right standing with God, but he did that same thing for the people in your relational world who haven't yet responded. God, help us ever become a people who feel satisfied that because we're going to heaven, everything's great. God, you have given us the promise, this hope that's held out in the gospel, but it is not over. You have us on this planet for a purpose, for a reason. And like we said last week, be like Epaphras. Take the great news that you've received, take it back to your people See how God begins a good work in their lives. Here's our now what idea as we walk away today. In light of who Jesus is and all he has done for you, continue in him. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you today looking at a passage that is so absolutely powerful related to the character, the nature, the incredible sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. And would you cause us, God, just to be in awe? Would you cause us to pause and simply take in the fact that you have done this great thing on our behalf? Would we, God, be encouraged this week to continue in you? You might be here today and you would say, you know what, Todd, I, I've been holding out, but the Bible couldn't be more clear. Couldn't be more clear that Jesus came and lived this life, died this death for me. And you're ready today to respond through the lens of the ABCs. A is admit. We said it a few minutes ago. Simply admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe. Believe that this Jesus we have so much talked about today, what he's done, believe he's the only savior available. Not like God, but God himself. C is choose choose today to say, Jesus, I put my trust in what you did. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago, but through the truth of your word, I believe you did this on my behalf. I trust your sacrifice was enough to make me right with God. I choose to follow your example. Today, today, salvation can come to you, and I just pray you take that step. Father, we love you. Thank you for the great privilege of coming to this table to receive from you a reminder of all that you've done for us. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we said, this couldn't be a more fitting day today to come to this table and to receive these elements. When you just look at the truth of this passage and all that Jesus has done for us, we respond with joy and gratitude. Jesus, thank you. These elements are meant to be symbolic, a reminder of what Jesus has done, and, and it's so sensory. It's something with not only our touch, but our taste, our smell, our sight. All these things are combined into this experience. I want to encourage you today, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are welcome. 
please receive these with us. If you're here today and you have not yet made that decision, just as we prayed moments ago, I pray you would. I pray you would, and as a result, then you would take communion. You'd receive it for the first time the way it was always intended, out of gratitude for what Jesus has personally done for you. Not just theoretically done for the world, but done for you. As the elements go by, would you receive a piece of bread, receive a cup, and hold on to those till they've all been served, and then we'll receive them together. If you have a gluten allergy, we have gluten-free in the back. Please take advantage of that today as well. Mm -hmm.